Hello and welcome to the SkyU Podcast by The Daily Gopher. I'm Chris, go AU fur. With me this week for a special edition of the podcast is Derek Burns, former offensive lineman for the Gophers. This is the 20th anniversary of Minnesota's upset over number two ranked Penn State in 1999. Derek played an integral role on the offensive line during that game, including blocking for Dan Nystrom on the fateful kick that Gopher fans have remembered for years. Derek also wrote an excellent retrospective of the 99 game, going behind the scenes to help Gopher fans see what it was like preparing, playing in, and celebrating that wonderful, wonderful win. We'll be reposting that article later this week, but given that this was the 20th anniversary, it seemed like a really wonderful opportunity to have Derek on the podcast to talk about that game, as well as talk about the upcoming game this weekend against number 5 ranked Penn State. Welcome, Derek. Thank you so much for joining me on the SkyU Podcast. Uh, You're very welcome. I appreciate you having me on. Always excited to talk college football. Well, we were talking a little bit before we got started here about just, you know, looking back on on the the 99 game and and trying to take a feel for how to, what was different um, now looking at this, you know, game in, in 2019 versus 99. And you want to elaborate a little bit on like what feels different to you now compared to how it would have felt back then, kind of looking at these two games? Uh, yeah, this is, I think the dynamics, uh, I mean, the teams involved, um, I, I think that this uh, game coming up with the Gophers and Penn State, um, the 2019 game, is you have two teams, a Gopher team certainly on the rise, um, both ranked opponents, uh, big games, really kind of a clash of the Titans. Um, both teams want to, you know, see how they fare against, you know, top ranked competition. Uh, the 1999 game was Minnesota, you know, we were five and three. Um, we had, we thought we were a pretty good team. Uh, we had lost, um, to three ranked opponents. Um, you know, real quickly, I think we lost by, three points to Ohio state. I think we lost in double overtime to a ranked Wisconsin team. And, and then we lost by one score to uh, Purdue uh, with the guy by the name of Drew Brees was the quarterback for Purdue that year. So we had lost three games, tight games to good teams. Um, We felt like we were a good team, but to be honest, we were, we were not comparative to Penn state that year. Um, We weren't, they were ranked number two in the country. Uh, They were, they had more talent. They were faster. They were stronger. They were they were on another level. So, I think the the matchup back then was much, you know more of the David versus Goliath. Frankly, um, despite the fact that we felt like we were a little bit on the rise and and were a solid, good fundamental team, we were playing you know at Penn State versus a you know number two team. They had it was their homecoming week, um, and they were certainly poised to. You know, they they had no fear. They were very aggressive. If you just look at the way that they came out of the blocks, um, you know, they were ready to dispose of us and move on. So I think that's kind of the little different lay of the landscape, uh, you know, of the two games. Kind of in that vein, obviously the internet creates, I think, a lot more of the bulletin board material. And uh, was there any sort of, when you talk about ready to dispose of you and move on, was there anything that the coaches used in the lead up to Penn State to try to get you amped up related to them dismissing you at all? No, I, I there were times that they did that. Um, I don't recall that being a part of the preparation for Penn State. Um, I think, you know, looking back on things, um, they 
their game plan was going to be, and, and really this was kind of the makeup of our team that year, we were extremely aggressive on defense, especially um, trying to shut down teams from running the ball. This was just when the the spread passing game was, was coming into its own in the Big Ten. It probably had evolved in some other conferences, but it was just kind of taking over the Big Ten. So running the ball was still number one for every team, I believe, and with the exception of maybe that Drew Brees-Purdue team. Uh, and, and so our defensive philosophy was to shut down the run, and we knew and our coaches knew at the time that that they were we were going to be overmatched on offense versus their defense. So our game plan on offense was to be very conservative, uh, but then take some shots throughout the game. Now, um, they don't put it to you like that when you're they're talking to players saying, hey, guys, we're going to be really conservative. <laughs> we're going to try not to turn the ball over because they don't want to take away your aggressiveness. But um, But their kind of philosophy for us was, you know, we're going to be patient. We're going to be, we're not going to get discouraged. Uh, we're going to, we're going to use zone running. We're going to, you know, run the ball and then we're going to have some shots. We're going to have some, some bullets as I um, put it in the story. And that was kind of the, the philosophy. It didn't, wasn't as much in this case of the, you know, we're being disrespected or nobody, you know, they don't think of us this way or that way. Um, it was, it was more just focused on what we have to do to put together a, you know, a path to making it a competitive game and, you know, maybe pulling out a win. For you, did that change your approach to preparation in a week like that where, you know, the if the game plan is methodical and then set them up to take a shot, you talked about the, the waggle wheel play and the story. Um, obviously, you know, uh, the, the Hail Mary kind of approach at the end. Um, is there is there a change in mindset when you're setting up for we need to execute things a certain way to set up a constraint or a, or a surprise later on or or do you just is it really kind of the same? Well, week to week? you never really know. Um, the way that the way that things usually work is you have your your base plays on offense, and then each week you continue to add in wrinkles and sometimes they're gadget plays sometimes they're just you know little play action wrinkles sometimes you're going to switch up the way you block things because you know the coaches do all their scouting they break down the film from the previous game and then they start scouting the opponent uh, over the weekend so by the time you go in for Tuesday practice at least that's how our practice schedule went um, they had their you know at least the basis of the game plan laid out and so they they formulate a plan that's based on, you know, we think these base plays are going to have success, these personnel schemes. And then now here's these, you know, sometimes it's two, sometimes it's four, sometimes it's more of these added plays that you work on that week. And you just never know. Sometimes you work on those plays and you don't run any of them. And sometimes you work on those plays and if the situation presents itself, um, if they're running the right defense, for example, or that they have the right personnel, that they're susceptible to one of those plays, then you'll end up calling it. And so that's where this week happened to be, um, you know, we had those bullets and I guess we didn't know at the time that, you know, we're going to run, you know, three or four of those would, would hit their mark. And that was, that was, that ended up being our offense for the day. We didn't have the consistency and the ability to, 
you know, eat up six, seven yards per run or go down the field with dink and dunk passing, we were, again, we were overmatched. So what we had to do was just sort of hold serve as much as we could and then hope that those three or four uh, bullets would find their mark. And, and again, huge credit to the coaching staff. They, they were well scouted. We did execute on those bullets, but it wasn't for, you know, one of the play action passes, for example, the tight end was it, it unfolded because they had realized the way their safety was playing in a short yardage situation that he was going to be susceptible to a play action pass to the tight end. And, and that's exactly what unfolded in the game. Their opportunity came up later in the game and were able to take advantage of it. So it had been, you know, I've, I've, the, the game was one that for me, I was in high school. I feel like looking back, I always thought it was a game that I had maybe watched, but just didn't remember as well, which feels odd because you feel like you should know it. And then I finally came across, somebody finally put it on YouTube. It's out there on YouTube. We'll have it on the blog this week. Uh, And I realized, you know what, whatever memory I had of this game was either gone or I was just having fond I was there memories when I really hadn't had a chance to watch this game. And watching it, one thing that blew me away was, although it's very big 10 to do it, was when Joe Paterno had uh, Penn State punt um, to you guys right, right, pri- the the punt right before the final drive that ended up netting them like 13 yards in field position uh, instead of pin- obviously could have pinned you deep, but it didn't. It was a touchback. Was that uh, like it? Was that a moment where you felt like, yeah, we can do this? Like they really should have kicked the field goal, and instead now they've really opened the door. Yeah, I think that I think that our coaches looked at it that way because we, you know, even even the fact that they uh, punted the ball, we still had to go 80 yards, or I guess in this case to set up the field goal, maybe something like 65 yards or something, and and so there was still a big um, hill to climb. Uh, but I think that injected a little bit of. Um, a little bit of drive into the coaches, a little bit of juice into the coaches for that final drive. Um, and I know that that was, you know, post post game and in the years since, um, that's definitely something that Penn state fans bring up is, is that decision to punt it. Um, I think if I recall correctly, the kicker, uh, I could be wrong about that. If he had Penn state kicker and missed one earlier, but, um, all in all, it was still a very conservative call. And so I think that that did help provide a little bit of momentum. Honestly, as a player, um, probably I probably didn't look at it that way because, again, you're we're starting on the 20-yard line. So the fact we've either got to go 65 yards and get a field goal or we got to go 80 yards and get a touchdown. And at that point, both of those seemed, you know, very, you know, daunting tasks. Uh, you know, rereading the article that you wrote, I know that not everything in that last drive sticks as clearly, which is totally understandable because there's a lot of adrenaline in that moment, I'm sure. Um, if you have like one thing that if somebody asks you what stands out from the Penn State game or specifically from that last drive, what's the thing that's like vividly is most vivid in, in your in your mind? Oh, boy. Um I think that a couple, if I can go with maybe a couple things, I, I do, sure. I, go for it. I do still remember just as vividly as if it happened, um, 30 seconds ago, uh, we huddled on the sideline. We called the timeout before the final field goal and we're kind of all business. And I know people were 
you know, on the sidelines were excited, but you're really just focused on you've, you've got to make this kick and you've got to, in my case, you know, I'm just focused on my block. Penn State had a huge, I mean, kick blocking unit. Um, they had blocked several field goals and extra points that year. That was like one of the things they were known for. So it certainly wasn't a gimme, um, even though the kick was, was a reasonable distance. Um, but one moment I remember vividly is um, standing on the sideline and just kind of like deep in thought, kind of <laughs> staring into space. And my my really good friend on the team, Akeem Akinwali, grabbed my arm and uh, I just squeezed it. And I looked over at him like, what? You know, what's what's going on? And he just looked at me right in the eyes and didn't say anything, you know. And, and I was, and it was like, the message was kind of like, hey, you know, focus or, you know, this is, this is big or something, you know, that, again, nothing was said, but that was kind of like the, but I still remember that Akeem has unfortunately passed away at a very young age after that. And he was, you know, probably my best friend on the team. So I look back at that and, you know, I, I remember that like it happened 25 seconds ago. And, and then the last, uh, you know, the other moment um, would be, I do remember when the kick um, when the trajectory of the kick went up, I remember looking up after, you know, I had executed the block just to get a look and see where this, where the, you know, I knew it wasn't blocked. So I had to take a look at it and see where this thing was going. You know, was it going to be close? Was it going to be hooking? And it was like, I, I took a look at it for a one one hundredth of a second and saw that it was like dead center, completely you know if you look go back and look at the video the arc on the kick was incredible it was like one of the highest kicks you know that that Dan had ever, probably ever kicked and so there was just no doubt so I still remember that moment just looking up and glancing and like taking a millisecond to see that and yeah I just knew right away the kick was good so those those two I definitely remember yeah it's uh it was really fun for me to rewatch. I mean, obviously Dan's part of it is something that's that, that highlight is easy to find, but um, just, it's always fun for me when I watch that highlight, just to see that he's kicked it and he immediately knows, like as soon as it gets past Penn state's line, he's just celebrating. And it's, that's gotta be such a fun feeling to not have to wait on it and just be able to, to let loose. So I'm interested. I read an article recently about Utah players. They play a lot of night games because of being on the West Coast. And so they have a lot of time, downtime during the day. And so for them, a big problem is trying to avoid getting too hyped, reading, reaching that correct level of intensity. Uh, did you ever find it was difficult before a big game to moderate that? Or was that something for you that you just, it kind of came, came easy? Yeah, I think that, um, I guess maybe the preparation for the game, like right before the game, going through warmups and things like that is pretty consistent. So maybe not a big difference there. Although when you're, I uh, take that back. I mean, when you go to a new stadium uh, and, the, and especially a lot of these big 10 stadiums that are some of the biggest stadiums in the, in the country, in the world, um, there's a little bit of, you know, off factor when you go in and, and, but again, it's, it's a pretty consistent um, experience, you know, warming up and you keep things very routine for that purpose. But I think that probably the biggest difference in, in getting ready or, or focusing for a big game is goes on during the week. I can remember you, you go through and it's, it's kind of that outside noise that I know the coaching staff talks about now. And I can, I definitely know where they're coming from on that because 
when you're preparing for a game, you, you know, you have your, your family, you talk to your family every week, you have, you know, texts and calls and you talk to friends and you're going to class and you talk to people at school and it's just, you kind of, you have your routine and you're prepared. And again, things are very consistent, but it definitely changes when you enter a, you know, quote unquote, big game week. I can remember rivalry game is a good example. Um, you know, a game like the, the Penn state game where you're, you're, you're taking on a top five, you know, top two, top three ranked team, because all of those interactions you have go, the, the frequency goes up and the conversations change. And again, that's outside. It doesn't really change your preparation, but it's, you, you can't pretend that it's not different. Everybody's, oh, Wisconsin, yeah, you know, totally. Wisconsin this week. And, you know, I've got, you know, two cousins that live there and I've been arguing with them all week and, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, where you're taking on, in this case, um, the, you know, like the Penn State week is you'd, it was, it's kind of interesting. You'd be, when you're a big underdog like that taking on, you kind of get this like, well, I'm good luck. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be tough. You know, it's almost like a little bit of pity, you know, or, or, you know, people are like, you know, good luck with that and hope it goes okay. Kind of, you know, they don't say it, but they're almost saying like, I kind of feel sorry for you, but, um, but it's a, it's an incredible opportunity and nobody should, should feel sorry for anyone in that situation because of the opportunity they have. But, um, that is very, and so it took me a long time to get to answer your question. You have to focus, you have to, um, actually take energy to focus on concentrating. A lot of times you can just ignore those things and just let them, you know, kind of go by and the normal chatter, again, those normal conversations, those normal interactions is just normal and you just let them go and you focus. But the volume of those and frequency of those conversations gets so loud during a big week that you actually have to take mental effort to block and just focus on the next, okay, I got to go to this class next. And then I got to go to practice after that. And like, you just, you just have to focus on it and kind of, you know, block it out as like the biggest cliche in the world, but it's true. You gotta, you have to take mental energy just to block it out. You know, an interesting thing that I guess I never really thought about is, is the Penn State game actually your favorite memory as a gopher? Or do you have a different favorite memory? Uh, any, it could be anything. Like what's, what, I guess, what is your favorite memory of your time as a gopher? Oh boy. The, you know, the, I would say if point towards, we, we had some really big games, some, some fun games, some big wins. Um, that one probably stands out. At, I think, Yes, it probably from a game perspective is is my favorite memory because it was the start of one of the things I think that added to it for me and and for the the other players and and the fans at the time was it was coming it was the start of you know something that hadn't you know a good thing this this big good thing that happened that there was such a um a desert before that um I believe Minnesota had finished you know, give you an example. I think the team, the 2019 team now, if I have my numbers correct, and they may not be right on, but I'll, I'll, I'm probably pretty close. I think this team, this Gophers team, has made a bowl game 11 out of the last 14 seasons, something right close with that. So, although the team hasn't had the, 
you know, championship, Rose Bowl, like the very top tier success, they've had a lot of decent to good seasons. Um, you know, you have to be at least 500, you know, with the exception of, you know, you can get in at a, at a five and seven record, but you, you know, to get 11 out of the last 14 seasons, most of those being uh, all of, I think, but one being at or above 500 in 1999, I believe that the team had, the Gophers had only had finished with a winning record one out of the previous nine seasons. And some of those nine seasons were really bad, like one win, two win, um, I mean, really bad seasons. So I think that one of the reasons that, that it's a such a fond memory for me is I got to experience all the all the fans and all the people around the program, the, the, the trainers, the medical staff, the coaching staff, the strength and conditioning staff, the doctors, all these people that had put all kinds of time and effort and, and you know, focus and attention on the program and not had a great return, I mean, in terms of, of winning. And so that one was the, it was so cool to see um, how excited people were to have a big win. And so to this day, that's that's why I love the game is because I just love that, that Gopher fans and the people around the program, that it meant a lot to them. That's what That was really cool. Yeah, I, that, that kind of really rings uh, true for me because I guess that's, I think the closest I've come as a fan to being around that since, Again, I was so much younger when it happened. It didn't. I didn't have the ability to look back and see the history that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the closest is the Wisconsin win last year because I was. I've literally been present at every Wisconsin game since uh, they had won the Axe in '03, all the way through uh, to last year. And so I'd been there for a lot of true lows, and then some. You know unexpected lows in that time and you know that was a lot of I think what you're describing is a lot of catharsis and a lot Mm -hmm. of of release of emotional pent-up emotion um and uh I mean there was a lot of that there were there were people just crying (laughs) in the stands at the Badger game and I was just I knew it was going to be a big moment for for everyone around the program and fans and anyone else but it yeah, that that really really resonates with me because I saw a lot more of that at a level I didn't expect. I just expected people to be happy, but it was it, it's a it's I always look at I, one thing that taught me was to see that emotion you talked about, um, whether it be the Wisconsin game last year or the the Penn the ninety nine Penn State game, this incredible emotion, and I learned that at that back then I learned that that emotion is the result of all the previous um, work and blood sweat and tears and experience and close losses and blowout losses and um, it's the result of all of that and so it's not the easiest thing in the world and you see it if you listen to you know just sports commentary kind of the talkers and whatever and they'll they'll rip on fans and players and they'll say look at this you know basketball or football team that wins a game and these guys are running around the field and they're crying and they're either you know they're acting crazy are you kidding me this is just they just want a game and well big deal you know yeah it's a big win but you know like like this i this this fake idea of over celebrating and it's like no it's not that they're not celebrating because 
well, we just won this one game and, you know, we practiced for a couple hours this week for the game. There, it's cathartic was, I think you had a great analogy of the, with the Wisconsin, it's, it's all the build up to it. That's, that's the emotion that's pent up. And it's not about that one moment um, and acting, you know, silly or overly emotional. It's, it's all the stuff that builds up to it. Stick around for the second half of the podcast where Derek will break down improvements he's seen thus far by the Gopher offensive line and share some thoughts he has about what we might look forward to in the Penn State game. All right, so I'm going to turn us a little bit towards this season's game. Uh, and, and I have a, some questions kind of related to the, the 2019 team. Uh, for those of you who aren't uh, totally familiar, Derek does a great job of breaking down uh, Gopher games uh, on Twitter. Um, and you can catch him on uh, uh uh, the 24-7 podcast as well, uh, breaking stuff down. I would like to just kind of ask you some questions about the offensive line uh, very specifically this year. I've, you've talked quite a bit on Twitter, and I've learned so much uh, from from you know getting a chance to read what you're seeing for this team, but uh, some additional questions that uh, folks on the blog came up with. Sure, sure. Kind of a transitional question. In what way does the current offensive line for the Gophers – operate differently than the lines you uh, played on under Glenn Mason? Oh, that's a good question. Um, we, the similarities are they were both zone running schemes. Uh, so inside outside zone, although they're maybe blocked slightly differently um, and there's different variations. Um, the core of that is largely intact. Um, I would, first thing that jumps out at me is we did not, the RPO was not a thing. Um, so we we did not have to contend with um, RPO, you know, which is essentially a, more of a stock block, and you're trying not to get downfield. It's almost like a play action block, which is very difficult, uh, by the way. But um, I think that's a big change. Um, we didn't have, uh, and I know we we talked before we started recording about you know the rot- some of the rotating the Gophers are doing. Um, now we that wasn't a thing back then it generally you had your your five offensive linemen and barring injury those were the guys that started the game or the guys that finished um uh, other techniques were we used uh more definitely used more pin and pull than the current um gophers uh team does and we we were really on the glenn mason started the at least with, with minnesota um started the pulling the center being uh, a big um, kind of game changer for outside zone and then eventually like a toss, a version of toss, pin and pull, which when Lawrence Maroney and Greg Esslinger and those guys came after me, uh, that's that was kind of the pinnacle of their running, uh, you know, during that era. Uh, that, that was where they reached their heights, and I think a lot of that can be accredited to the to the pin and pull techniques that they uh, used and, and kind of evolved into. And uh, we've not seen that too much um, yet out of this um, current gopher um, uh, running game. A little bit of pin and pull from the like guard tackle side, but but not pulling the center hasn't been become too prevalent yet. So that would be another difference. Um, we didn't run power. Now the current team uh, for the gophers doesn't run a lot of power and maybe even less than two, three times a game, uh, but that would be a different change. And then the last thing I would say is we did, uh, in 1999 especially, we had uh, Billy Cockerham at quarterback, and he was he was a 
definitely a running threat in uh, the read option wasn't as big of a um, a trend uh, then as it is now but the just the straight option speed option was so we used a speed option especially on the goal line in short yarded situations and that was kind of our version of a read option so those are three or four things that are uh, different from you know what we had back then compared to what they're running now so you mentioned the the, the rotations that the gophers sometimes do um, you know that can take several forms uh, blaze andries um, Chris Dunlap shifting in and out. Um, you can move Olsen around, insert Schmitz at center. What when when the Gophers are doing those rotations, what do you think the benefits are for them, schematic or otherwise, by making those changes? I think you know I'm without having the benefit of of actually you know talking to the coaches and finding out what's behind the, those decisions and you know or or you know attending practice and things like that. So I'm kind of I'm shooting in the dark a little bit, but I. I have I feel strongly that they have six guys at part of that rotation. They have six guys that are very close in ability, performance, um, and so I believe they're they're making a concerted effort to develop six players. So, um, and I it be, I think part of that is because they don't I believe they don't have a senior in any one of those six, and so they're trying to build and develop guys to be able to play in the future, not just when guys graduate, but also in the case of injury. So I really, I'm really convinced that um, they're, they're doing the rotation so they don't have to sit a guy and not have him develop. And the example I would use is uh, Curtis Dunlap. He was a guy at the beginning of the year getting his first meaningful reps. I think he played in, I take that back. I think he played in a couple of games last year and played uh, for most of the game, but, um, but this year being his first, you know, consistent starting role, um, he was a bit behind the rest of the players and it wasn't anything he was doing wrong. It's just from an experience standpoint, you have a guy that's, that's getting his first, you know, long-term action. And so he was a bit behind. Now it would have been very easy to say, okay, you know, Curtis isn't, you know, performing exactly at the same as these other guys a little bit behind. We're going to sit him and we're going to bring in somebody else and he's going to sit for two or three games or who knows how long. Well, the downside of that is now you're not developing a, a freshman. So what's happened with Curtis is he wasn't as far along, but then, you know, within the last three or four games, three games, he's really come along. And so he's really developed and you can see it. And that's one of the cool things. One of the things I love about college football is seeing guys develop and how much they can improve from game to game and season to season. Cause these are, these are young men. And I think that that's a direct um, result of the fact that they've, he's been getting experience and they've been developing through that rotation as opposed to maybe sitting him out. So I, actually, that that improvement leads to I think one of, is one of the I think the happiest things for me is is uh, Sam Schluter. You know, obviously had a really rough start uh, to the season last year. was was eventually replaced by uh, Daniel Falele. And I think you know, as a fan, especially fans when we don't understand um, offensive line is a hard thing for I think an average fan to understand so coming in you know you see Sam stepping into that role again and all you can remember sometimes is that he struggled what in what ways do you think uh, Sam Schluter improved the most and how has that really benefited or impacted his performance this year yeah I think that he's um, I typically think of offensive line 
progression or, or like maturation, if you will, of an offensive lineman in three phases. Um, the first phase is, is knowing um, who to block. So it's assignments going through getting your blocking calls and knowing what you're going to be doing on any given play. And the second phase is how you're executing your block. So that's technique. That A lot of that comes with experience and kind of honing in those skills. And that third phase is really effort. So you're, you're not, and it's a progression. If you don't know who you're blocking, it doesn't matter what your technique is and it doesn't matter how much effort you give. It's, you're not going to be successful unless you happen to guess right. And similarly, if you don't have the right technique, you might know who you're blocking, but you don't have the right technique. You can give as much effort as you want and you're not, if you're not using the right technique, you're not going to be successful. And so for Sam, I think last year he was on, he was growing through phase two. So I think Picking up his assignments was okay. Uh, I don't think too many missed assignments, maybe early on. Um, hard to remember back that far. But um, he was growing through that second phase of technique. So, and some guys, some guys develop uh, in college. They, they go through those phases. They can go through them all in three or four weeks. Other guys get stuck on one phase for a year. Everybody's different for different reasons. And doesn't mean one person's right, one person's wrong, but it's that's one of the unique things about developing players. And so I think for him, it was developing, getting the experience, developing the technique, which he, now that he's gotten better at that, he's the guy that's probably been the most consistent and has he's able to provide the most consistent effort this year, especially at the beginning of the year, because he had the most experience. So he's a guy. He was he was a guy at the beginning of the year when they were struggling, um, particularly with stunts and slants and things like that. He was the guy that he knew what he was doing. He had worked on his technique because he had had all the experience last year. He was a guy that was giving maximum effort on every play because he he was comfortable. The other guys were getting becoming adjusted with taking on all the stunts and the slants because it was the first time they had seen it or the first time they had dealt with it. For him, it wasn't. So I think that's where his his growth and has come from last year to this year. When you talk about the effort, it seems like what you're saying somewhat on that regard. Not just I'm not looking at Sam specifically, I'm more globally just on any offensive lineman now. Uh, It seems like what you're saying is is if you're feeling, I don't know, almost hesitant on either of the other two phases, your effort – your effort will struggle not because you don't care or because you don't have the the power to give. It's just you're kind of I don't know. Was it you're in your head about one of those other two phases? It, that's exactly right. You can't. If someone asks you to run a forty yard dash, you don't. You understand what you're doing, and maybe someone gives you a little bit of work on technique. But it's very easy to go out and run as hard as you can for forty yards. But if someone asks you to come out and run a cone drill you've never run in your life, they can explain it to you and they can say, you're going to run five yards, you're going to turn, you're going to circle this cone, backpedal, you know, three yards, round this cone, turn, make a, you know, 90 degree turn and run back through where you started. They can explain that, but you're not going to be going full speed because you've never done it before and you have to, you haven't experienced it, you don't know First of all, you may forget what you're doing, but even if you understand the concept of I got to do A, B, C, D, and E, um, you're going to be hesitant because you're going to be thinking, okay, now I've got to backpedal, now I've got to turn, am I turning here, now I'm wheeling around, and you can't go all out, or if you do, it's going to be a mess. So it's the same. I don't know if that's a good analogy or not, but you're what you ex- what you explained, or uh, yeah, that's you, you got it. That's 
That's exactly right. It's not a it's not a choice about someone's loafing or not giving effort. It's they're they're not able to maximize their effort because they're stuck on one of those other two phases. So one thing that's always, you know, I've heard people talk about outside zone being difficult to master. Obviously, outside zone is something the Gophers added in as the season progressed. So that would seem to indicate that, you know, it, it's something they needed to work on to get to being able to use it. Now it's also seemingly something that's a very successful part of, of their offense. What makes outside zone difficult to, to build as an offensive line? Well, it's outside zone is um, the zone, zone running scheme is you're you're blocking an area that's not you're not blocking a predetermined defender. So you're blocking whoever post snap defends any given um, area of the you know of the line. And it, on similarly, if you're playing a gap sound defense, which all teams do. They're block. They're defending a gap or an area of the field, and so what outside zone does. It's it's difficult to master on the offensive side, but it's also very difficult to defend um, if the offenses are doing things right. And I think to directly answer your question, you have the more area that you have to block, the more athletic and mobile your uh, your linemen have to be. So obviously blocking a you know a one by one area is really more of a game a one by one foot area is more of a game of attrition strength um you know you're it's it's mano a mano um you know again you're talking about things like technique and leverage and stuff like that um if you ask someone to, on an inside zone to block now three or four foot area you're taking a 300 and in this case up to 400 pound um person and asking them to move and be able to block anyone who defends that three or four foot area. Now on outside zone, it, now it might be a three or four foot, you know, downfield by 12, 15 foot wide area. If these guys are really going to get out and run with a defensive end or an outside linebacker or something like that. So now you're asking that 300 plus pound offensive lineman to get out and block anyone who defends a giant area. And so you have to be able to move, be more athletic. Your technique becomes more important because now you're blocking in space. Um, leverage becomes more important. Um, you know, your accuracy on where you're hitting your blocks, what shoulder and things like that all become, um, you know, more, even more magnified. But the, as I, as I started with, it becomes incredibly difficult to defend because now I always use the example of a backside linebacker. Backside linebacker is the number one person who makes the tackle on both inside and outside zone because on inside zone, it's usually cut back, which funnels back to the backside inside linebacker. And on outside zone, most of the force and contain players outside on the play side are blocked. They're accounted for. Usually the backside linebacker is able to outrun the, that 300 and some off, pound offensive lineman who's trying to cut him off or block him. So that's usually the guy that has to make the tackle. Well, if he, you're asking a guy at backside linebacker, he now has to defend a cutback on inside zone that could be right in his face or might even be, you know, backside another three or four yards. Or he has to turn if it's outside zone and he has to sprint three quarters of the way across the field and make the tackle on the opposing team's sideline. That's the challenge outside zone presents for a defense. 
that's that's thank you that's actually really so what i'm hearing is then essentially one of the struggles that could happen when you're trying to implement outside zone is it really does require all i mean any any blocking scheme i'm sure depends on all five guys being able to execute but you might be able to get away with a little more uncertainty and execution with some of the other schemes but when you're trying to defend that kind of space you really need all five guys mastering their technique and and hitting their spots mm-hmm. in order to make it to make it hum yeah i think you're you're, you're right a mistake uh, is magnified um from an outside zone especially at the point you know of attack whether that's at the cutback point or or at the you know the, the play side you know edge um again you're you're blocking usually a smaller player in a in a larger amount of space, so it becomes even more crucial. So one thing that you mentioned when you were uh, kind of breaking down the Maryland game was calling out uh, the play of the tight ends, uh, specifically I think on some of the uh, Seth Green uh, wildcat plays that kind of sprung him for a touchdown. I think they were tight end was coming across the play and. Um, kind of sealing the edge, if I remember correctly, is how you described it. The, as the team has continued to improve in how they run the ball, how how much of that success is owed to the tight ends and their blocking? Yeah, they've, uh, yeah, it, it's, they've been solid uh, from the beginning of the year, but they've progressed, you know, kind of when we explained Curtis Dunlap earlier, they've also... Um, matured and gotten better and been able to take on more they've asked more of them in the blocking game and in in asking them to vary the amount of types of blocks that they're being asked to do on on the zone running plays. so the beginning of the year they were mostly blocking whether it was play side or backside edge they were blocking um the guy, you know, for lack of a, it's difficult to explain without, you know, kind of like a whiteboard talk, but they were blocking the defenders across from them, whether that was a defensive end or whether they were blocking up to the next level and, and they were, the team was optioning the defensive end. So they were typically blocking within, you know, their, wherever they lined up, blocking within that space. What's happened as the season's gone on is they're now either through motion or post snap lining up, for example, one of the tight ends at, at a right H back. So if you're just looking from the quarterback size, the right side of the offensive line, they're, they're lined up as an H back. And instead of blocking the defensive end on that side of the line of scrimmage, that end of the line of scrimmage, they're now pulling and blocking back on the opposite defensive end, uh, the left side, again, from the quarterback size, they're blocking back on the defensive end on on the weak side. So they're opening up, essentially kicking out to open up a cutback, either for the quarterback, if it's a quarterback keep, or a running back if he's if the ball's handed off, and they're opening up that cutback. So they're also, like outside zone, they're also being asked to block uh, in more space, um, which is harder to do. But I think as they've matured here, especially Brevin Span Ford as the year's gone on, gone along, they've asked him to do that more. They motioned him in on, on the Wildcat formation and asked him to do that quite a bit um, and been really successful. And that provides, it does a couple things for you. One, it helps you, it helps the defense from being able to key on where the tight end is lined up. So now they're not, they're not, they're able to see, 
okay, I see the H back is lined up over here. Odds are, you know, he's going to be blocking on the DN or the outside linebacker because it's going to be, you know, a zone play this way. I can key on that. I can, I can cheat a little bit. Well, now if he on the snap of the ball is blocking back and coming back, giving that motion across, that's going to freeze the linebackers a little bit because they don't know what that tight end's doing. Is that coming back for power? Is that going to be a zone play going the other way? And so, that's helped out a little bit. And then the last thing I would say is they're they're also setting up, and I would expect to see it before the year's over, they're also setting up play action. They've not shown it yet, but using that same motion and that same block back and faking that block and, and the quarterback keeping the ball, and they would leak him out on the backside for a, a play action pass. Is there any... I mean, looking at this Penn State team, I, I guess I don't know how much uh, of Penn State you've gotten to watch. Is there any particular matchup um, that interests you most coming into the game on Saturday? I have, admittedly, I have not. Um, I've seen Penn State play um, about one and a half games, to be honest, other than highlights. I mean, I'm familiar with what they've done this year and who they've beat, and I've seen, seen the highlights. Uh, you know, I know a few of the uh, key players, but I've not done a schematic scouting. You know, my focus has been with the time I have, you know, to, to break down what the Gophers are doing um, and just provide kind of some breakdown, you know, um, thoughts and things like that. But I haven't had the time to, to go and do look at schematically look at film and break down scouting. But my sense is if I had, so with that grain of salt, <laughs> I've not done, you know, I, I, um, I've got a, you know, I've got to um, make excuse for myself if I'm wrong, I guess. But um, <laughs> I have to, I, I would guess that Penn State is probably going to scheme to take away the Gophers' outside running. Um, they, If you look at the what Minnesota is doing on offense, um, they've had success running outside zone, inside zone, and and that those RPO, that mid-range passing. Um, what they've seen in the past, so as a defense, you've got to go into the game with the um, – you know, with a, with a plan. Are you, what are you going to try and shut down? How are you going to try and do that? How much are you going to cheat? How much are you going to scheme? How much do you think you can do that just with your own personnel and play, play more base? Uh, but I think you have to go in with a plan and decide what you're going to, what you're going to shut down and then really what you're going to f- try and force the offense to do. And if I had to guess um, without doing a lot of scouting, I would say that they're probably going to try and shut down the Gophers outside zone running uh, which means that the Gophers are li- like Wisconsin did last year. Um, they had a very f- quick, fast 3-4 defense. Linebackers could cover a lot of area. That was their strength. Uh, you're not, at least on last year's team, not going to have a lot of success running outside zone. So what the Gophers did is they came back and ran straight at them with inside zone. And so if Penn State does that, try attempts to do that on Saturday, I would expect the Gophers to counter with heavy inside zone, but then also uh, throwing those RPO passes and mid-range passes into really tight windows, depending on the type of coverage Penn State runs. So I'm intrigued. Um, answer your question. That's that's the matchup I'll be looking at. Um, you know, when I watch the game, is to see how how Penn State is lining up and what they're doing post snap, and to try and determine what they're trying to take away. And if I just had to take a guess at it, that's that's what I think they'll do, and what I think the Gophers will do to counter. All right. 
Well, Derek, thank you so much uh, for joining me this evening. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate it. I I just love, uh, you know, be, being a fan and love talking college football. And I really, really appreciate you having me on. And um, it was, was a lot of fun. We've got a number of fun things lined up related to the 99 game this week. Keep an eye out for the opportunity to watch the entire game. It's now available on YouTube. We'll have links to that on the blog. As noted earlier, we will be reposting Derek's retrospective and behind-the-scenes look at the 99 game, so make sure you read that again or for the first time. And, of course, we'll have all of our normal preview content leading into this weekend's huge home matchup against number 5 Penn State. In the meantime, go Gophers. Sky Yuma, row the boat.